0: Open your Bibles briefly, but open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Here at the very beginning of the New Testament, God saw fit to establish right away, very first chapter, the humanity as well as the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he did so through the documentation of his birth. In, uh, in Matthew chapter 1, Starting in verse... I knew there was something wrong there. I'm sitting here in Mark and I'm going, that just doesn't look right. I know I couldn't have wrote that down wrong. I've read it too many times. Matthew chapter 1. Starting in verse 18. It says, This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded, commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. The two of them did not have union until she gave birth to a son, and they gave him the name Jesus. What we have here in this passage is the very heart of Christianity, and that of course is the birth of the Savior here, as well as in a more traditional passage, Luke chapter 2, is the very basis for all of the manger scenes that we see in our neighborhoods this time of the year. But there's one thing that's never mentioned. One thing that is absolutely foundational to Christianity. But it is actually mentioned right here, ever so briefly, in verse 23. It says, they will call him Emmanuel, which means what, everybody? God with us. It's one thing to see a manger scene with all the characters looking at the baby Jesus, but we must go beyond and must realize that this is God becoming a man. Please understand, folks, if this was not the case, his eventual death meant nothing. If Jesus Christ wasn't God, his death meant nothing. If Jesus was not human and divine, there is no good news. If Jesus was was not sinless, holy God, he could not have paid for our sins on the cross. And so that being the case, I want to step away, if you will, from uh, the normal Christmas story right, Mary and Joseph, the baby Jesus, the whole manger scene. And I want us to grasp the truth that it was God in the manger. Turn your Bibles now back to John chapter 1. Gospel of John chapter 1. This is a very well-known verse. Many of you can probably quote it, but it says a lot. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He says, In the beginning, this is a very important word, was. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning of created existence, already was the Word. That's naturally understood to be an eternal existence. If the Word already was in the beginning, that means He is eternal. The Word, if you will, continually was. There was never a time when the Word was not. And that phrase defines the very nature of whom he calls the Word. It also says here in verse 1 that the Word was with God, and he says the Word was God. Now when he says the Word was with God, God, the word with in the Greek is a, what's called a, a directional preposition. A directional meaning it's, it can mean towards, it can mean to the side of, it can mean face-to-face, right? It's, it's a directional preposition. But this is actually showing us the intimacy of that personal relationship within the triune Godhead, right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. As we'll see from verse 14 in just a minute, this speaks of the pre-incarnate relationship between the Son and the Father prior to creation, or for that matter, prior to anything. Now from here, notice how key the rest of the verse is. John says, not only was the Word with God, but he says the Word was God. He unequivocally says, To understand the word, we must know that he is God. This is, of course, why later on in this very same gospel, Jesus was able uh, to answer the question, who are you? And he says, I am. Ego am I in the Greek, the, the the ever-existing one is what that means. He didn't say I was, I used to be, I, I just am. That's the ever-existing one, absolute deity, is what Jesus meant. Jesus Christ, the Word, is and was, as John is professing Him to be right here, eternal God. You see, folks, Jesus had to be God. He had to be perfect. He had to be sinless. He had to be the spotless Lamb, or He was not qualified to hold the title of Savior. From there, skip over to verse 14. Don't read it just yet. Well, you can read it if you'd like, but I'm not going to read it just yet. But at this point, we're going to enter into one of the most important verses of Scripture, probably quoted by theologians more, uh, or maybe even more than any other verse in the entire Bible. Whenever you talk about the deity of Jesus Christ, simply meaning his deity, the fact that he is God, Okay? You're talking about what we would call an essential of the Christian faith. In other words, this is not debatable. This is not, this is not one of those things where we can agree to disagree on. This is essential. When we see the manger scene, and how many manger scenes have we seen recently, right? People's yards and whatnot. Right? When we see the manger scene, when we see the baby Jesus lying in the hay in a feeding trough, that's what a manger is, right? What we see is God becoming man. We see God wrapping himself, if you will, in flesh and bones. That's what we see. Now, when the subject of Christ's deity comes you will usually hear somebody do what I'm going to do now. And that is, quote, John 1, 1, and then verse 14. He says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice those words, folks. The Word became flesh. We've all heard that, I'm sure, many times. The Word became flesh. This is what I want you to grasp. That is the manger scene. Do you understand that? The Word became flesh. Verse 14. That's the manger scene. That great theological verse that people have quoted and written on, that's the scene that we see every time. I hope it makes you think about that a little bit more. That's the manger scene. Now, in this letter, the gospel that John has written are two basic reasons for writing this letter, okay? Number one is there's an evangelistic reason that, that the Apostle John wrote this letter, Okay? His goal is to tell people about the the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Well, you'd have to go back to what we would call a purpose statement. John gave a purpose statement in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, which he simply says this, these things are written, right? I've written all this stuff to you. I could have said more, but of course we would have books and books and books and books. I've written these things to you. Why? So that you might believe in that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says that's the reason I wrote this. It's evangelistic reason. Number two, there's what we would call an apologetic reason. No, I don't mean apology. I mean apologetic. In theology, apologetics simply means to make a defense. Apologia means to make a defense. Okay? Today, we would use the term is to defend the faith. Apologetics for Christianity is to defend the truth, the faith of Christianity. Defending what we know to be true from Scripture. Here in our text, John is defending the true identity of Jesus Christ, especially his deity. With all of the heresy that was going on in the first century obviously, Arianism, uh, certainly Gnosticism, and many other isms but they were teaching that Jesus was not divine, that he was not God in the flesh, that John. Uh, had to stand up he, he couldn't just this stuff was spreading folks arianism is, is what we still have today in the jehovah's witnesses the mormons and so forth they carried that on it came from obviously a, by a man named arius john had to stand up and portray jesus theologically accurate as he possibly could with all that was going on. And by the way, that's why we have what's called the Nicene Creed. You guys have heard of that, the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. It's to to make a statement of the church, the church. This is where we stand. This is what we believe. This is what we know about God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. For example, about Jesus, it says he is very God of very God. That statement was created because there was so much heresy going on. That something had to be stated, this is where Christianity stands. John here is doing something a little similar. This is who Jesus Christ truly is. And therefore, this morning, as we look at verses 14 through 16, John is going to discuss, if you will, the intricate details of the nature of Jesus Christ. He has to do that because, as I said earlier, If Jesus was just your average baby born in Bethlehem that year, if he just grew up to be your your average man who maybe he was just fighting for what he believed in, he had no ability to save you and me. He had no ability to save anybody. Christianity would be no different than every kind of religion in the world. John has to spend some time talking theologically to make sure the world understands that Jesus Christ has no peers. Jesus Christ has no peers. Jesus Christ stands alone, stands above every person, because Jesus Christ is God. That is the message, folks, that is missing from Christmas. It's God in the manger. That's the message that's missing. God stepped out of eternity. He stepped into time and space and then began in what you and I know as Bethlehem of Judea. Let me read verse 14 again. The Word became flesh and He made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, being that the Word became flesh, they saw His glory, the glory that was with the Father, we know the Word is Jesus Christ. Why, though, is He called the Word? Because in the Greek culture, the word logos, right, word, the Greek culture, the word logos was used to mean not just the spoken word, but also the unspoken word. Okay? So whether it's the literal words that come out of our mouths or it's those thoughts that are still in our head, right? They haven't come out of our mouth yet. The Greeks would say that is the logos. Okay? It is the expression from within us. Okay, John, the the author here, John chose to use this word to tell us that Jesus Christ is the literal, physical expression of God. Let me give you a couple verses just to chew on. In Psalm 33, verse 6, this is from the Septuagint, it says, By the word of the Lord, were the heavens made. By the Word of the Lord were the heavens made. Yet in Colossians 1:16, speaking about Jesus, it says, "For by him all things were created." Did you catch that? John here tells us that Jesus Christ is the Word of God. Paul tells us that He created all things. The psalmist says, by the Word of the Lord were the heavens made. Think about that just for a second. That's why I said Jesus was the physical Word of God. If we want to know God, we have to look to the person of Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what John says here in verse 14. The Word became flesh. The very expression of God. The very expression of God came in human form. The Word became flesh, he says, and he made his dwelling among us. That began, as you know, with the virgin birth. The Word, Jesus Christ, was always with God and was God, right? Verse 1 told us that, didn't it? John 1.1. 1, 1. Until he came into the world. He was always with God, he always was God, and then he came into the world. This, by the way, is exactly what Paul says in uh, Philippians chapter 2. Many of you know this text. Great text. I've quoted this numerous times over the years. In Philippians chapter two. He's using this example of humiliation, humbleness. Verse five, and of course, he says our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, and he explains what we call the humility of Jesus Christ and. And that is him leaving heaven and coming to earth. What does it say? Talking about Jesus from the end of verse 5, it says, Who, being in very nature God, catch that? He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. You think of grasping or taking a hold of something. In other words, he was willing to let it go, right? Like he was holding something and let it go. What he means is he, he left his throne in glory and he came to this earth. He says, verse 7, he made himself nothing. And people want to discuss that all the time. But what does it mean he made himself nothing? It, he just continued going on. This is what he means by it. He says he took the very nature of a servant. It's actually slave, doulos in the Greek. He became or he being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, Then it says he humbled himself and became obedient to death. That, of course, is the reason he came to this earth. So he simply starts off in this passage by saying Jesus Christ is in the glory. He is in heaven. He left his throne, wrapped himself in flesh and bones, ultimately to do what? To die on the cross. This is what theologians like to call the hypostatic union. Jesus Christ took upon himself an additional nature, right? He was divine, right? John 1.1, he was divine. He was God. He was eternal. But now he's also human, human. Jesus Christ is 100% God. He is 100% man, okay? Okay? His very nature as God never left him when he took upon himself the limitations of a man. As a human being, there's limitations, right? But yet he was always God. He was fully man at the very same time he's fully God. Now what makes this even more interesting are the words that John uses going back into verse 14. Notice he says, he made his dwelling among us, right? The word became flesh. He made his dwelling among us. The word dwelling there literally means a tent or a tabernacle. That's what the word dwelling means there. Basically, he's saying Jesus pitched his tent among us. As humans, in other words, as human beings. Jesus pitched his tent. He made his dwelling among us. Now, when you think back to the Old Testament, when the Israelites were in the, the wilderness, God made his presence known to them, didn't he? We know that. God revealed his glory where? In the tent, in the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle was a tent, in case you didn't know that. That's how God revealed his glory. The word glory, by the way, is doxa. That's where we get the term The doxology, right? You've heard of that? It means magnificence. It means excellence. It means preeminence. You think of the glory of God. Now when the eternal word, Jesus Christ, became fleshed, it says here that he pitched his tent among us and in the process, what does it say? They got to behold the glory of the one and only One and only is the Greek word monogenes. It simply means one of a kind. One of a kind. There is no one like Jesus Christ. He was not just a baby in a manger, he did not just grow older, wiser, and simply become a prophet. He is one of a kind. So much so, in Colossians 1.19, Paul said God had all his fullness, all his fullness dwell in Christ. The writer of Hebrews says Jesus, or he says the Son, is the radiance of God's glory. That's Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of God's glory. And as the one and only Son of God, He has no equal, but yet is fully capable to reveal the majesty of the Father. I find that amazing. God revealed His glory in the tent in the tabernacle. Jesus made His dwelling. He pitched His tent among us to do what? To do the exact same thing, to reveal, to show His glory. The rest of verse 14 says he came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We know he came from the Father based on verse 1, where it tells us that he was with God. He was, quote, face-to-face with God, right, from the beginning. So from all eternity, Jesus was in the presence of the Father until... Philippians 2, right? Until he humbled himself and he came to this earth as a man. That in itself illustrates those two remaining words that it uses to describe the character that's a part of his very being. And that is just simply grace and truth. Move with me, if you will, into verse 15. He says, John testified. Now this is... This is John the Baptist, Okay, just so you know, where it says John. John the Apostle never uses his name in this book. So when it says John, it's John the Baptist. Actually, by the way, it means John the Baptizer. It's a verb. He wasn't the first Baptist, okay? (laughs) He's John the Baptizer. It says, John testifies concerning him, concerning Jesus. He cries out, saying, this is he of whom I said he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now, if that's confusing, just hold on a little bit. The Apostle John brings up this point that John the Baptist made because, what does it do? It gives him further evidence of what he's been saying since verse 1. Okay, He's bringing in other evidence. Evidence. Okay? He says, John testifies concerning him. That word testify, by the way, means to be a witness. Martireo. We get our word martyr from. It means to be a witness. Testifying means to be a witness. What is a witness? We all probably know what that is. No different than in our court system today. A witness gives further evidence of the truth. Right? No difference than us today. If you want to prove something in court, what do you do? You bring in a witness. And so to prove his point of what he has been saying about Jesus, the Apostle John brings in, quote, a witness to testify, and that is John the Baptist. Okay? Now, what is it that what is the truth that these two men agree on? Let's break it down here in this verse talking about Jesus, whom he calls the Word, right? John the Baptist, look at John the Baptist's quote there in verse 15. John the Baptist says, He who comes after me. Okay, that's how he starts off. He who comes after me. Now, humanly speaking, we know that Jesus was born six months after John the Baptist. We know that. In Luke chapter 1, verses 26 as well as verse 36, it tells us that Mary became pregnant with Jesus when Elizabeth was in her sixth month of pregnancy. Okay, we, already, we know that. Scripture tells us that. But specifically, what John is really talking about is the ministry, not necessarily his birth. Okay, John the Baptist, as you know, was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. So not just in his birth, but also in his ministry, Jesus came after John the Baptist, okay? In Mark chapter 1, I'll go ahead and read this. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, kind of gives an opening here about John the Baptist. Mark 1, verses 1 through 7. It says, The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Verse 4 And so, John, or if you just want to say, therefore, guess what? John the Baptist, he came. Just what Isaiah said, he came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothes made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, vegetarian sounds like to me. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to even stoop down and to untie. It's amazing what it said there about him but it tells a story and connects everything. Also in Luke chapter 1 verse 76 it says and you my child he's speaking about John the Baptist you will be called the prophet of the most high and here it's very clear right you will go on before the lord and you will prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. John prepared people for the Messiah, for Jesus Christ, sharing with them they better repent of their sins, put their faith in him. And it was a bap- they would be baptized as a sign, a declaration of their repentance. That's what John did. He, he came and prepared for the coming of Christ. Now, even though John the Baptist was before Jesus in his birth, John the Baptist was before Jesus in his ministry. The rights, and this is very important, the rights to supremacy belong to Jesus. He says back in John chapter 1, verse 15, Yes, he came after me, but what does he say? but he has surpassed me. Did you catch that? That's where I said, is that confusing to you? John came before him, but he who comes after me has surpassed me. I just read to you in Mark chapter 1, verse 7, John Baptist says, after me will come one more powerful than me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down (laughs) and untie the man's sandals. Wow. I'm not even in the same league as Jesus. He'll say later in chapter 3, He must increase. I must, what? Decrease. It's about Him. It's not about me, is what that's saying. Even though back in the first century, And this is a key to the importance of this. Back in the first century, the older person was always given more respect and was looked at as greater than the younger person. That's just how it rolled back then. John the Baptist, even though that was the case, John the Baptist recognized when it came to power, when it came to glory, when it came to position, and of course his very nature, Jesus Christ was far superior Now, outside of a a sheer understanding that Jesus was the Messiah, why did John the Baptist feel this way? Yeah, he's the Messiah. We get it, right? Well, the end of verse 15 says it. Because he was before me. He was after me, right? He came after me in his birth. He came after me in his ministry. He has surpassed me. But guess what? Somehow, he says, he was before me. John the Baptist is telling us what the Apostle John already said in verse 1, that Jesus existed in all eternity as the Word of God. Sure, John the Baptist uh, came first, humanly speaking, but Jesus already existed in his pre incarnate state. Understand that? Jesus, he didn't have the name Jesus, by the way, because he was given that name when he was born. But the second person of the triune Godhead, the Son of God, always was, as John 1 1 said, which is why I looked at that earlier. Which is why he says he was before me. And folks, you know what? This was actually brought up 500 years before Jesus' birth. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Where was Jesus born, right? Bethlehem. As for you, too little to be among the clans of Judah. Listen to what he says. From you, one will go forth for me to be the ruler of Israel. Listen to this. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Catch that. He's speaking a prophecy about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to those in Bethlehem who will be the leader, the ruler of Israel. He he came from long ago, from all eternity. (laughs) Wow. I know that's hard to comprehend for all of us, myself included. That someone could have always been? I get it. If someone has never had a beginning? But I tell you what, I'd rather trust in the eternal God, the God of all creation, than just some man who was born like you and me. Just an average, everyday guy, right? So what is the point of this verse? It is the eternality of Jesus Christ. The eternality of Jesus Christ. The second person whom we know as Jesus, he always was. We're told that in the very first verse. But now it says, what did he do? He became flesh. He came into this world. But that wasn't his beginning. That was simply his beginning as in person, in humanness. But he had to do that because he came for what? What reason? He came what? To die. He had to die. Okay. Read it again. John the Baptist says about Jesus, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. He surpassed me. He's greater than me. Why? Because he was before me. Because he's eternal. Folks, the birth of Jesus Christ was only in his flesh. He already existed as God for all eternity. Now picking up in verse 16, kind of where he left off in verse 14, but the Apostle John says this, we'll close with this. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Now we know from verse 14, which we read earlier, that Christ is full of grace, full of truth. Now here in verse 16, he repeats and he says that there is a fullness of grace. Within the person of Christ, there is a fullness of grace. Interesting is the word fullness there means he is filled, he is overflowing, he is at the rim. It simply means that he can actually disperse as much grace as he wants, but he's still going to be full of grace. Concept, contemplate that just for a second. And of course, I answered my second question, what is he filled with? And that, of course, is grace. The word grace is the Greek word charis, which can mean different things. It can mean a free gift. It can mean goodwill. It can mean blessings. It can mean undeserved favor. Right? Here, it probably means literally the sum total of every spiritual blessings that we have received. He said Christ is simply spilling over with this. And the good news is, because of what the word grace means gift, okay, he doesn't keep it for himself. He doesn't. He says, We have all received one blessing after another. Christ, he says, is the source of all of our blessings. The NIV. Is is definitely making this more readable when it says, one blessing after another. Okay? But in a literal rendering, a literal reading of the Greek, it says Christ gave us grace, taking the place of grace. He just continues to put his grace and give his grace and give his grace because he, it's, it's, a, it's ever ending with him. It keeps on going. He doesn't get empty. But it's grace taking the place of grace. It's a continuing replacement. The grace that He gives can never be exhausted. Just like every day, for those of you who like the beach, you know, every day the waters, the wave—I guess I should say—the waves come in and come in and come in, and, can, and they do it nonstop. They never stop. The grace of God is the same way. It just continues to pour into the life of those who know him and those who desire him. And that's because of who he is. The whole point of the message, who who is he? It's not just, hey, it's the baby in the manger time of year again. Who is the baby in the manger? As we close this morning, On yet another Christmas, I hope our time in God's Word has caused you to realize that the birth of Jesus Christ is not so much about the manger. You know what the manger is, right? The manger is a feeding trough. It's not so much about the manger. It's it's not so much about Jesus' birthday. It's God coming to earth in the form of a man. Almighty God who spoke the universe into existence, all eternal, all powerful, all knowing. As I say, he's omni-everything. He came in the form of a man, and that is Jesus Christ. Why did he come? For one reason. He came to die for your sins and mine. That's why he came. You cannot pass over the manger without seeing a a shadow of the cross. I hope with a clear understanding of that baby, Jesus was the Messiah. We know that Jesus was the Savior of the world. We know that it was God who came in human flesh. Because you understand that, I hope now that Christmas will never look the same again. I hope that when you see another manger scene, and we have all seen one or the same one dozens of times already this year, but every single solitary time you picture it or you see it, you think of John 1.14, the Word became flesh. That's the manger scene That's Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can go back to your word. Lord, I know, I say this sadly and from experience, I know there are churches in the the United States today who actually bring Santa Claus into the church service, which to me is sickening. Lord, we thank you that no matter the subject matter, certainly one of the greatest ones of all, the birth of Christ, we can simply go back to your word. This is not a week that we don't look at your word. This is a week we definitely want to go back to the scriptures. And you you have given us your truth. You have told us who Jesus is, who is the baby. You have told us what he came for, how great he was, or still is, I should say. Thank you, Lord, for using the scriptures to remind us of the truth as as our culture drags us away inch by inch by inch into this ridiculous concept that Christmas is somehow decorations and gifts and a tree. But we can always go back to find the absolute truth to know it is about one thing. It is about the word becoming flesh. It is about Jesus Christ coming as a man And therefore, seeing in the future the shadow of the cross where he would die. Thank you, Lord, for that entire message that once again, we know the truth. We get it from your word. We don't have to trust in all the traditions of men. And we give you thanks. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.